This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. I did that at the same time. You guys should be (laughs) impressed. Everybody, welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am your hostess, Amy Beth Shaver. I did that because you said it last time with a little accent, like you're French or something. Which Uh, which part? The hostess. Well, you know what I was thinking of is like, as soon as I started to say hostess, I started to think uh, hostess. I immediately started thinking of like little Debbie cakes. Me too. I didn't want to say it because then I thought, that. well, is that weird? Hostess because cakes. Hostess cakes. And hostess then, cakes, which you know, again, you didn't bring today li- either. But. I, didn't, I didn't bring any little Debbies. So, I mean, they're so yep. filled with horrible things. And <sighs> yet, Larry, they are so delicious. So, Larry, Alex, Totten, what was your most favorite little Debbie or hostess treat growing up? Uh, I would have to say it's the Swiss rolls because I have a specific oh. way that I do that. I okay. go to the bottom. Okay. There's a little hard chocolate strip I'm like there. I'm talking to my husband right now. <laughs> He's so this way. <laughs> I unravel that chocolate. You know, it comes off in a sheet. Yes, it does. And I eat the sheet and then I break off the ends and then I unroll the cake and then I eat it. Yep. So good. Yep. I do it. I have some upstairs. <laughs> Swiss cake rolls are phenomenal. Um, I have some in the uh, the office break hey, room upstairs. Did you ever eat the peanut butter bars that were yep. kind of a like ripoff of Twix? Oh no, that's a whole other bar. It's a different there, one. Yeah, so it's peanut butter in the middle. So it's kind of like Twix because you think, oh, this is going to be a Twix bar, but it's peanut butter with the chocolate and a cookie, you know, outer shell. Right. Well, they wh- were divine. We're approaching Halloween, and um, hence the reason this is on our mind. And there are little. Three, three Musketeers, Musketeers bars on the are the table. best. Got through college and marketing class with Three Musketeers. By golly, I'm going to eat one. So we were talking about something, and I think it's important to talk about, and it was school and mm-hmm. the way that schools are engineered. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I read the same book about school not really being engineered for a, a boy. Did you do well in school? Keep talking while I eat this three musketeers bar. <laughs> because methinks that you did not. But they're also, you know, they say that schools are engineered more for girls because we can sit there and we can pay attention longer. And as a mother of one boy, I can tell you I fully appreciate <clears throat> how much trouble we got into when we were in the the early years for our son. Yeah, I... Uh... I would have to say no. Uh, if my mom is listening, she would um, would want to call in right now and give her two cents on this. I was in trouble all the time. And by that, I don't mean um, trouble, trouble. I mean more of a, hey, sit down. You know, sit down. Um, don't shoot that spitball. You know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Don't um, pull that kid's pants down. There you go. Uh, so no, I, I mean, just during the show, we laugh uh, about this, but Amy Beth has the, you know, she has, she's got the nice studio posture and she's, you know, hands in her lap right now, shoulders back. Um, I fidget constantly. I'm all over the place. And, um, you know, I was playing with this plane, you know, and uh, <laughs> eating the Three Musketeers bar. Um, so as you can imagine, you know, I was much worse as a child. 
And that is because, unfortunately, uh, as you were just saying, yes, school isn't as a rule designed for boys. And we expect boys to be something they're not really capable yes. of being. And the result is that they're punished for being what they are, which is full of energy and they want to explore and they want to make noise and they want to be hands-on. So I was very much that little boy who was looking out the window, you know, couldn't wait for recess, yes. couldn't wait for PE, couldn't wait for the school day to be over. I, this is, this is, this will shock people, you know, maybe who are younger, but you know, I went to schools where they, you know, use corporal punishment. I mean, yeah, they paddle. Me too. And often we were given the, um, the choice when you got into trouble, you know, for something, given the choice of staying after school or paddling, I always took the paddling. Did you? Yeah, the way I always took the paddling because I'd think, oh, that's five minutes of my, you know, backside hurting versus sitting inside for yet another hour, which is just banging out erasers awful. or you know some silly thing like cleaning that. Cleaning chalkboards. Cleaning chalkboards and or you know having to do some schoolwork that I didn't want to do anyway, and I'm missing out on the prime you know, part of the day, which right. is I get home and <laughs> my buddies, as soon as they get home, we all come out into the yard and we play, you know, football or baseball or basketball, whatever was in season. Um, maybe we're playing hide and seek, riding our bicycles, uh, skateboarding, building forts, stuff like that. Those were all things that were, you know, were, were part of a 70s, 80s childhood. And we did all that stuff. And I thought, if I'm given the choice of getting a paddling, I'll hate the paddling, but I'll hate it less yeah. than having to stay in school even longer. Yep. This is uh, probably not shocking to anyone. You know, <laughs> it's probably not, except that of our kids, and our kids grew up the same way that we did. Yeah. We, we live on a cul de sac. They could run and they could play. Um, part of the time they were home, so we were all homeschooled at the same time. And so that was really, really fun. Um, but I have two kids. Of my four, I've got two and two. Two are very similar, the other two are very similar. And one of my girls got in trouble for talking so much that she was known to be left outside during recess because her teacher would forget about her. And I think maybe in part because the classroom was quiet when she wasn't there. I'd uh. like to tell you that this child is on the dean's list and is doing really well in college. But in school, it was really hard for her because you do have those girls that are like, I want to be out here. I want to sure, do this. Sure, I want to sure. go climb the trees. I always like and those students, actually. I mean, there's a, well, they're curious. You're a yeah. curious person. Those are, if, those are often intelligent kids yeah. that you can... Um, that you can, you just have to find a different way to engage with them. But I feel like um, often, at least of our generation, I felt like we had more sensible teachers. Yes. Than some, I mean, my mom has, you know, said if you were growing up in an era like now, they they pump you full of Ritalin, you know, or something like that. But um, I feel like the teachers of, um, at least that I was blessed to have, were generally pretty sensible about stuff like that, understood, you know, the nature of little boys to want to get out, do things. I had a number of female teachers who were highly tolerant mm -hmm. of the silly antics that my friends and I, you know, the, the things that we were into. Although famously, if he is out there, <laughs> uh, a Jason, Jason Flynn, I don't know if Jason Flynn is, uh, is out there, if he's listening but um, Jason, I believe, is a lineman. Uh, that is to say, he uh, for the power goes, company. Wow, that's very brave. Um, I believe that's what he does, though it's been many years since I've seen Jason. But when we were in second grade, our school was building a gymnasium. 
So um, for however long it was, six months or a year, however long it took to build it, PE was done indoors. Oh my! So all every day for PE, the um, the the desks were pushed to the wall, and then we you know had PE. And uh, in, in those days, I don't know if you ever had to do this, but occasionally they played a record. Yeah. And the record would be like yes. up, down, yes. up, down, da 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 da. You know, and you were supposed <laughs> to put your arms out and you know and do these different things to stretch and so forth. And we thought. As second graders, this was so childish. Oh, don't we you know. were above this. We were not <laughs> going to do it. And so this was a this this was a, a fairly large area because it wasn't just one classroom. It was the, the classrooms had movable walls. Yes, and so it was multiple classrooms. So we were kind of hiding in the back where we can't be seen, and we're chasing each other. You know, um, in uh, around the room. And in the process, we knock over an aquarium that was the size of, you know, it it it, it was it was like knocking over a, you know, a city water tank. You know, oh, I mean, it gosh. was it was. I can see it. I can see it now where it's tipping oh. and it's moving and it's going. Oh. <laughs> and all this water and all these fish are flopping. Oh no! And uh, anything, and then you know, the next thing you know, the the uh, they send for the principal, and the principal comes down and says, you know, who who did it? And uh, you know, and I come out and say that I did, and he takes uh, Jason and I out into the hall, and he paddles us both, um, as was done um, in those days. We Jason and I killed a lot of fish that day. <laughs> We, <laughs> I don't even know we, what kill, we killed a lot of fish that day. There was a fish. Sorry. There was a fish genocide at West Elementary. Wow. Uh, that day, but because I don't eat fish, I don't care. You weren't sad. It didn't I mean, sad and me at all. Little, you know. I will say the sand was in that carpet forever. I bet. I, I mean, think for the rest of that, no my amount of those old-fashioned. You remember yes, the vacuums? Those that they vacuum would cleaners use? that would that, that they would do the really demonstrations loud. on and 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 put it to your chair and then you know pull out all this black stuff and yes. you think I have to have one of those. Yeah. What were those called? They're not Hoover. Uh, I don't remember, but I just know that they were, were all they over the Hoover? school. And they they could metal. have been Hoover. Yes, they were metal. I mean, they were, you, uh, you could actually probably bring somebody back to life with the the pressure that was involved in sucking <laughs> Suck out the dirt. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but yeah, those were those, those were things the were those were impressive. Where I, did they go? I mean, I really hate that they're gone. I don't know, but um, I felt like Ray Romano because I can remember years later a salesman coming to my door. And I mean, do I look like a guy's going to buy a vacuum cleaner? No. But when he was through with his demonstration, I was so impressed and I thought, I have to have this vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I know what vacuum cleaners <laughs> you're talking about. And they were expensive. But it was like cast iron. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, you're going to have that. Va In fact, you may still have the vacuum that you no, bought I that didn't day. Buy it. But I didn't buy it. if he comes to my house, I would have bought it. It was like the price of a car. I'm a sucker. But it was, it was, it was very, very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be like pushing around, uh, you know, waffle iron. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Around. I it mean, was, you you didn't you got serious. out of the way. You got out of the way. So, okay. Well, you know what? Um, we got that out of the way, and I'm glad we did because that's a very important discussion from <laughs> Little Debbie's to Hostess Cupcakes, which Chris Shaver is a big fan of. This to what well, a lousy student that was, and into playing in class and getting in trouble. I have to. I have to say this. I have to tell this little story um, that is funny and relates to all this. A few years ago, I was that 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 town. They they named me alumnus of the year. I was very honored. 
to be named Alumnus of the Year of, of my old high school. And here I am receiving this award alongside of, um, do you remember the Wendy's girl? Redhead? Oh, yes. She, she was named an Alumnus of the Year. She was the female Alumnus of, of the Year, and I was the male Alumnus of the Year. And so here she is. I think her name's like Michelle Smith or something like that, lives in New York. She's an actress. And when it came time for me to, to speak, I said, you know, it's amazing that I would receive this award because, you know, I probably graduated. Now, I did very well in, uh, in, in, in university and in graduate school, but I probably graduated from here with like a 1.9 GPA. <laughs> and all these old, you know, teachers of mine are all, they're just laughing and laughing. And when it's done, when it's over, I'm done speaking. They say, oh, you're so funny. You know, you're such a brilliant student. I'm like, no, no, I wasn't. Yeah. You're not remembering this very well. I skipped your class at every opportunity. No, 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 that's not just so true. But I was reading the Grace Effect, and you're quoting, you're quoting Milton, and you're quoting Shakespeare, and you're 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 quoting Dostoevsky. I thought, ah, he was listening. And I thought, like, no, no, I wasn't. No, but I wasn't. I wasn't joking. You guys have re reinvented my story where I was like a you know 4.0 you know uh, valedictorian. My wife was valedictorian. I just barely graduated. Obviously, she's quite the very orderly, woman. very orderly, very on time. Took notes of everything. I took no notes, <laughs> none. So and you said that you bubbled in your ACT. I just bubbled in my ACT because I, I really thought I probably wasn't going to university. <laughs> so I thought of that as re really something rich kids did. You know, it's a very different mentality these days. But I just thought, you know, I'll probably end up, you know, driving a forklift, you know, or something. And um, so obviously some cha things changed for me. But uh, after I did spend a couple of years driving a forklift, I decided I do not want to do this for the rest of my yeah. life. <laughs> so suddenly I became motivated. But anyway. So I have an ABS. I'll let you introduce that. And for those listeners who maybe are tuning in for the first time. Um, the automatic. Go ahead. No, no, you knew I was going to say go ahead. The uh, um, automatic braking system, Amy Beth Shaver. Moments of the week, what has got you triggered this week? So this relates to our topic uh, for these episodes. This relates to childhood. Um, and dumping I, over aquariums. Dumping over <laughs> aquariums. And, and here's how it relates. And this is one of those things where I'm going to need you to help me walk this out. But I am triggered by a sudden rash of pastors, and some of whom I really admire, but are beginning to talk about it doesn't matter what party you're voting for. Mm. And, you know, we can disagree. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, but don't you have to be alive first to do any of this? Yeah. And I'm very bothered. I was so bothered by something I heard today. I had to turn it. I literally, I don't normally turn things off. I like to listen to the end and take what I can. Um, but I am very bothered by the disregard for life and the, the lackadaisical, oh, it doesn't matter. We can agree to disagree. I don't know how you can look at the state of politics right now and think that life issues don't matter yeah. and that you can be okay yeah. throwing your hat in the ring with a group that 
doesn't believe that life is sacred, that we are not created in the image of God, and that life is not worth living. I am very triggered by that right now. Well, I think you should be. I, I think we want to be very clear to people who are listening to us in Times Square yeah. and on NRB and uh, wherever they may, may be in the world, that our point isn't that salvation is found in the That's Republican correct. Party. Thank you. Uh, I, think, I, I think I speak for both of us yes. when I say that we're first and foremost Christians, and we have chosen to vote uh, a Republican as a result of Christian conviction, not the other way around. In other words, my faith, your faith, they define our politics, not our politics, our faith. Um, that, that being said, it naturally follows that as a Christian, as someone who takes the biblical message uh, very seriously, there are certain um, issues that we must, if as we're as as we're called to be, uh, to take very seriously. Uh, certainly, sanctity of life is one of them. And um, yeah, so I'm with you that that anyone could say, ah, it really doesn't matter. Um, and to me, that's just a cop out. That's a way for a pastor to try to avoid preaching on the hard issues. Um, I think it's uh, David French who recently was complaining about. The network that this is aired on, this is at, we're in, uh, aired on channel 378 on uh, on DirecTV, for those of you who are watching us on uh, on NRB. I was complaining, ah, you know, that, that, that NRB has just become, you know, um, all of this, uh, you know, Trump support, Republicans have just sold their soul to that. Guys like David French, Phil Vischer, um, Russell Moore, um, these are individuals, it feels to me, who have sold their souls to a much more sinister entity mm. <laughs> than a Christian broadcasting network. Mm. And uh, I, I think I can, can, can say that the folks that I know at NRB, it, it, they've not sold them, themselves to any political party. They feel very passionate uh, and by the way, I don't pretend to be a spokesman for NRB. I'm not, I'm not employed by, NRB. I'm just just telling you my my own impressions, and that is that that these are are the only party that we could say makes any effort whatsoever, and often poorly at that, to represent a Christian worldview at all is the Republican Party. <laughs> now we can complain about many many of the um, politicians within that party. Who often just give it lip service and then they don't actually right. That's right. do anything in regard to that. But I'm I'm in a 100% agreement with you. I think you have a right to be, you know, triggered over that. And the gutlessness of those Christians, of those pastors who are supposed to be leaders, who are not addressing these issues. I mean, it feels to me like if you are a pastor and you are not addressing the evil that is taking place in our our country in the form of Marxism, in the form of a globalist agenda, in the form of an aggressive, I mean, aggressive, we're not talking about, uh, which is bad enough, you know, instances of rape or, you know, incest or something like that. We're talking about right up until the moment of birth or post birth, yes. wanting to be able to kill the child. Um, we're talking about the sexualization of, of, of children. Um, how you can then say as a pastor, well, you know, it really doesn't matter, you know, which agenda you support. No, but it does matter. It does. 
And I bring that up today because I think the more that you have directed me to read and the rest of our show after we take this break, it really matters because if you're reading the Kissinger Report, if you're reading, I'm reading a book right now, The War Against the Weak by Eugene Black or Edwin Black um, about eugenics and its origin. If you're reading that and you are understanding that these people, Klaus Schwab and this group, these group of men and women who since, you know, the early 70s, believe that the earth's population is too much, they believe in population control, then you need to understand that this is where they're coming from. And it is sinister. It is diabolical. It is evil. And it matters what we do in November when it comes to voting. And you are 100% correct. Um, You know, I'm not advocating the Republican Party. What I'm advocating is a biblical worldview. And it is my understanding as a believer, and yes, it is an adopted person, that we have to be alive first to enjoy any of this at all. And so I just really want to carefully weave the thread of how important life is when you read how easily they disregard life, these these men in this cabal that they've created because they're the experts and aren't we glad they are. Um, that really matters. And so I was very triggered by that. So thank you for that. Um, stay tuned though, because we're going to come back and we're going to follow up with finishing a little bit more on who Klaus Schwab is and then head into what this whole Great Reset thing is about. What does it mean anyway? And where can we look for resources, um, starting with yours truly's phenomenal series of articles for The Daily Wire. We will be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Okay, welcome back. We are continuing our discussion about Klaus Schwab. Yes. It, it is a name that you want to say into a microphone or just kind of drive down yeah, it, and it, say it, it, it's does. kind of that name, you <laughs> yeah, know. It does. Um, but tell us a little <laughs> bit more about Klaus or not. Yeah, we t- we talked about Klaus Schwab in um, part one of this series on Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and uh, you know the he's kind of the original um, international man of mystery. You know where you know it's hard to find anything really on his background. And I have read, and I I don't know to what extent this is true, but that there have been individuals who have tried to do the hard research of going to, you know, his hometown where he was born and to get records there and not being able to find anything there either. So that would not completely shock me looking at how his Wikipedia page is clearly guarded by an army of editors. Uh, That's the way Wikipedia works. So in that sense, you know, we were talking about word count, you know, in the last episode, his, his, the word count for his, uh, uh, his Wiki, uh, Wikipedia page is fourteen hundred words. M- mine is probably as long as that. That someone else, you know, put put together, and um, y- you know, but that's insufficient given this guy's you know global ambitions and claims. There's almost nothing there for almost nothing that is negative, and there should be quite a lot that's negative because of the nature of this guy's worldview. And 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 the point that I'm making is that. Clearly, when people are trying to post anything there, somebody is knocking it off because that's the way that's the way Wikipedia works. You see, so there are there are are monitors, and and given their rank, they have the ability to remove something. Somebody says, you know, Amy Beth Shaver was 
Miss Alabama 1994 and somebody knocks that off because they don't want they don't want that on there even though it's factual and it it right. it, it, it it belongs on 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 there that is the way that works so in so Wikipedia can't be confused with Encyclopedia Britannica which operates differently and and Encyclopedia Britannica its word count is more uh, indicative of mm-hmm. importance yeah. versus, um, you know, Wikipedia, which is more about level of public interest as a as a rule. But I state all this just simply to say it's weird how there's almost nothing you can find beyond facts. Born 38, attended university, graduated with this degree at this particular time, went to this university, graduated there this particular time on the board of this uh, this engineering firm on the board of that engineering firm worked for this engineering firm founded the uh, um, the World Economic Forum. So there's a lot there that is yet to be uncovered. However, focusing on the known, what we we may know is it's easy to deduce from his books, which I mentioned in part one uh, that I've read. I've read three of them: the uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, uh, published in 2016. COVID-19, The Great Reset, published in uh, June of 2020, and um, The Great Narrative, published in June of 2020. So those all came out. And what I want to tell you about them is that each of them is kind of like this. This is the paperback version of, of my book, The Grace Effect. Please buy it. Please buy a lot of it. It's an excellent book. Gift it. Gift, thank you very much. Gift it to your friends. Um, it makes a wonderful Christmas gift. But that wasn't my point. Now, here is this book. It is... About the same size, about the same length as any of those three books by Klaus Schwab that I mentioned. This is about 225 pages. And about the last, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 pages are, um, you know, are footnotes and uh, um, indices. Schwab's book, and it has a nice attractive cover here, which, uh, you know, HarperCollins um, did. Schwab's books look like you took them down to Kinko's. They do. They're super basic. But I think that's telling. I think that that says something because there's no indices Mm -hmm. in them at all. Uh, So you can't really look up specific um, topics. And there are those who see conspiracy, Amy Beth, in when COVID-19, the Great Reset, was published um, in June of 2020, you know, just the, the pandemic was, you know, was barely, you know, five, six months old at the time. And people were going, aha, well, that, they had that book ready because they caused the pandemic. They knew it was coming. Well, no, I don't think so. You read that book, almost all of it feels like something that was on somebody's laptop. And all they did was tack on some, you know, mm-hmm. stuff about COVID-19 right. at the beginning and at the end. It'd be like, you know, rewriting this book and updating it, you know, with the Biden administration and, you know, some references to COVID and, uh, you know, some events of the last few years, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and riots and what have you. That's the way those books feel. But part of what I'm getting at is that they're they're not good books. And I'm not just saying this to pick on Klaus Schwab. I'm I'm saying that the books aren't well written. As an author, I take writing seriously. You would think that guys like this, with this kind of ambition, that they would hire, you know how you see books that say, um, you know, 
this happens all the time in publishing. Somebody does something really silly that goes viral or maybe something very important that goes viral that gets a lot of attention. A publisher will come to them and say, we'd like you to write a book, I, but I don't know how to write a book. They say, that's fine. We have a ghostwriter right back here who will mm. do it for you. Mm. So the book will say, by Amy Beth Shaver with Joe yes. Blow, you yes. know, or, you know, whatever, right. that, who's doing the real writing and you're telling them your story. You would think that they would do that with these books, but they didn't. So the books are not particularly compelling. They're like reading TV manuals and they look like TV manuals. Yeah. I mean, they're not something that you pull out of the mail envelope and go, oh, yay. Can't wait. This is so exciting. That's right. They're, they're not books that are like that um, at all. And the books themselves, this is this isn't mind comp. You know, if you're if you're yeah. looking for the smoking gun, that's not it. Those those books are going to feel fairly innocuous unless you know how to read them. You know, meaning you you know what it is that you're looking for. What is it they're they're promoting here? And they're trying to present both sides of an issue. Here's a technology that might be used to as you know, to um, to track sick people in the future. Here's the sinister potential usage of that technology. But there are several things that come out in the reading of them. And one of them is a contempt for democracy, um, which is, of course, a contempt for people. Yes. They believe, they do not believe in liberty for the individual. They believe in liberty for the collective, which is just another way of saying they don't believe in liberty at all. Yeah. Now, if we think of your liberty as only that which is granted by the collective, mm. um, freedom as is in the world that the two of us have grown up in has often come to mean that you're allowed to be a jerk. You're allowed to do things that I might find distasteful or that I wish you wouldn't do, but that I am honoring the right, or, or let's reverse it. I'll be the jerk in, the, in, this, in this scenario. You're honoring my right to be a jerk and make a fool right. of myself. Correct. You're, uh, you do that every day on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, honoring, you're honoring that right uh, in 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 some sense, that's what freedom means. I was a little surprised to see that you know Alex Jones, who it's odd. I've never made reference to Alex Jones ever, and I've made reference to him in two episodes uh, here now. But Alex Jones, I saw yesterday, was ordered to pay almost a billion dollars. I don't know if the guy has a billion dollars. Seems like an insane sum of money because of some silly things he said regarding the Sandy Hook um, shooting. Right. That he said it was, uh, apparently he said it was a hoax. I've never listened to Alex Jones, so I didn't hear that. So don't send me a flurry of yeah, emails and tell me either. that he he didn't say that. I don't know. What I know is that a court of law has ruled that he did say it and that he now has to pay a fine of almost a billion dollars to the parents of Sandy Hook. Now that to me is shocking on two levels. First of all, if he did say that, that's just a silly thing to say. But the more shocking aspect to me is on what basis are they making him pay this money? In other words, freedom as we've understood it is the freedom to say stupid things. Right. You're allowed to say stupid things. You're allowed to publish, you know, mind conf like books. You're allowed to do those things. You're allowed to be an idiot because... 
people have to have the sense to process those things and to accept or reject them on the basis of their their own value. That that ruling smacks of the kind of globalist thinking that says we want to send a message to any of you out there who's saying something that we don't like. And then of course we saw PayPal, you know, just yes. just say and of course they backpedaled off it, but but in future they won't. If you say something we don't like, we're going to find you what was it? $2500, I believe. It we're going to so- find you 20 how, how can you do that? If I'm your banker and you say, you know, War Eagle, I, I don't like that. I mean, I know you wouldn't. It's a, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> it's a blasphemy. <laughs> but if you did, or him, you know, say, you know, you know, uh, go Vols or, uh, you know, hook them horns or, you know, uh, something like that. Um, how can I just willy nilly decide that I'm going to fine you for that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure how the law would would back that. I'm not quite sure why there's not some investigation of PayPal mm-hmm. for issuing some kind of guideline like that. Because how can you just seize other people's money because you don't like what they what they had to say? So this is this this view of freedom that's actually no freedom at all. Yeah. It's a tyranny of the collective. And when you read, you know, the founding papers of of uh, much better than reading this nonsense um, of this country. You know, read the Federalist Papers. I think it's uh, Madison uh, who talks about the tyranny of the majority and how the liberty, the rights of the individual must be respected against the community. Yeah. That, that's, an, that's, that's important. So Schwab, to me, his mindset, when you read him, I'm used to, and I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this in a, to brag. Please don't hear me uh, saying this. Rather, I, uh, for that purpose, I'm saying it by way of establishing my credibility on what I am going to say. For more than a decade now, I a big portion of my career has been hanging out with men who posture and are recognized by elites in the world as being some of the most intelligent men on the planet. So I have spent a lot of my time in the company of individuals like that. And now what I've learned from when I first started down that path was, you know, I'm going into a meeting with one of them some years ago, and I'm prepared to be overwhelmed. And I come away with a confidence, kind of a bounce in my step. I'm going, you know, I'm not sure he's all that clever after all. Hmm. Uh, because I think that his education is all uh, hyper-focused in science, but has a very poor understanding of philosophy, of history, of theology. Hmm. He can just talk on this particular subject. And I found that has been true repeatedly with a lot of these different guys uh, in engaging them. And, and, and I'm not being sexist and saying, guys, I mean, it's quite literally men. Yeah, Every yeah. single instance uh, has been a guy that uh, I've, I myself have personally dealt with, be it a debate on Al Jazeera or on CNN or you know, at Oxford University or Princeton or wherever else we've done them. Schwab, having engaged those types of guys, okay, now postures as being of that same class. Mm-hmm. 
And I would say that Schwab is a, uh, he's a B-teamer. Okay. Really? Yeah. I, Schwab does not strike me. Schwab strikes me as Mr. Networker guy. Yeah. Okay. He, He's the sales meeting guy. He is the sales meeting guy. We've we've all met them who works the room in a very superficial kind of way. Comes off a little smarmy, you know, in, in, in the way that they do it. It's, it always has the business card, yeah. you know, ready. And um, it's always about promoting their brand. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, or or using you to get what they want. It doesn't actually feel, you know, collaborative in any way, shape, or form. But I gotta hand it to Schwab in this regard. He must be gifted at it. Yeah. Or excuse me, I will make this distinction. <laughs> Talents are given to believers and unbelievers alike. Gifts are only a spiritual gifts are only given to believers. And uh Klaus Schwab is clearly not one of those. So he must be a very talented networker guy. Because what he's managed to do is what almost nobody has managed to do. He's managed to get guys like Xi mm. to participate and Biden to participate and Angela Merkel to participate and Elon Musk to participate and Jeff Bezos to participate and all kinds of movers and shakers. I don't know for sure that Bezos has participated, but I mean, guys right, right. like that. Um, the, the, in big tech, in industry, uh, in academia, sometimes a very disparate, you know, mm-hmm. political views, mm-hmm. politicians to gather at Davos and to participate somewhat constructively for their purposes, not for ours, uh, towards their World Economic Forum goals. So he clearly is a guy who is very skilled at getting a lot of different types like this to want to participate. And I, and I have to give Peter Goodman of the, uh, the New Yorker credit here, because this is his observation and not mine. Goodman would say that the reason that he's good at doing it, and Goodman's written a book called Davos Man. Uh, it's very well written. It's very leftist, but it's very well written. Goodman says that he's good at doing it because he's brilliant at appealing to their vanity, mm. meaning he knows how to, wow. to stroke their egos. So hence the, the ability to get a lot of these types of people involved in, uh, in all that he's doing because he, he's, I mean, imagine how hard it would be, you know, um, ideology aside for a moment, you're dealing with with diva after diva after diva who's telling you what color M&Ms need to be in the bowl and and what the dressing room needs to look like and, and whether or not they enter first or they enter last and where they should, will be seated. I refuse to sit to the right of so-and-so. I must be center stage. I refuse to take a photograph. I mean, imagine all the protocol mm. of all that. Schwab has been able to do that, but but from an intellectual point of view, I don't read his books coming away impressed with Schwab. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schwab is, uh, I, was, I was prepared to be. Um, but he, when we say that he's an engineer, his degrees are in engineering and he is an engineer. And I don't mean that as a criticism to any engineers. Right. Uh, I could never be an engineer, but but... Even the language he uses is the language of an engineer, the great reset, uh, you know, which which sounds like shutting down a big machine and restarting it again. Um, and uh, he talks about the future is built 
yes. by us. You know, that's the language of an engineer. That's the, the language of a megalomaniac. But <laughs> but in speaking of building things, you know, he's he talks about rebuilding the world. He he sounds like an engineer. He's a technocrat. But his books are full of references to let's say guys like uh, Daniel Defoe, you know, who wrote a, a novel. You know, the uh, uh, year of the plague, I, I believe it's called a, 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 the the plague year. I've, it's gone out of my head. I've read it. It's 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 been a number of years ago, but it's a work of fiction. And you read Schwab referencing what he had to say about the plague, and this is the uh, you know the plague that swept Britain in mm-hmm. uh, 1666, 1655, 1666. The Great Fire of London, you know, ended it. But Schwab quotes it. As though it has, you know, something for us to learn. And I'm thinking, do you understand that it's a work of fiction? Mm. Do you not know that you're you're quoting authoritatively a work of fiction? I will quote a work of fiction too, philosophically, right? But not the way he's quoting it. As though we we take from it, you know, I would be a little worried, you know, if NASA, you know, was was getting all their 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 cues on on world travel from the Hardy Boys. You know, you would just think, uh, you know, I'm not sure that Franklin Dixon ever, you know, actually went to space and knows anything about, you know, aeronautics and, uh, you know, space travel. I'm not sure he knows anything about that. And and, and so he, he, he quotes also uh, Nietzsche, which is actually where you're going, okay, now he's quoting somebody that feels like he knows him more personally. And I'll come back to that. But he quotes... Uh, who else do I want to say uh, um, Hemingway? And in in those instances, it feels like he's quoting. It, it it feels like they're uncomfortable quotes for him. Not like he really knows them particularly well, but he's he's harnessing them mm-hmm. for his purpose. But the ones that he quotes, where it feels like he has a deeper relationship, where yeah. you're going. Now he's talking about somebody with that he with whom he's familiar. Mm-hmm. It's Friedrich Nietzsche, who is just as dangerous as can be. I would never quote Nietzsche favorably, and not only that, but he quotes him cliche. He quotes, uh, you know, Nietzsche saying that which doesn't kill us will make us stronger, which is one of the more stupid things that Nietzsche ever said. You know, we're talking about my accident. I'm sitting here as a guy I've been been dealing with a lot of pain in the last. 12 hours um, that as a result of of injuries that I've I've suffered from you know being hit by a car we discussed on on this show I can tell you authoritatively ladies and gentlemen that that which does not kill you might just maim you for life <laughs> meaning <laughs> the idea that somehow it it makes us stronger right. and I understand that there's 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 uh you know metaphorical significance in that there are things that that I did come out stronger and you know, hopefully more uh, spiritually stronger, and I've learned to deal with pain and and uh, so on in maybe ways that I I didn't know um, before. But you know, I've hear people reference that as though it's from the Bible, yeah. and uh, and it isn't. You know, the <laughs> the biblical version of that is all things work together for good uh, for those who are called according to His purposes, uh, which is a which is a subtle difference. Those two are a little different. One of them indicates that it isn't so much that God is using it to make you stronger, rather that even an evil, a terrible evil, God and God alone can can still manage to bend that mm. 
in such a way that it still it still can have favorable outcomes for people who are involved who are themselves believers. That's 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 a very different thing than than than, than what Nietzsche is saying. But again, Schwab is quoting a guy like Nietzsche, who was a madman. You know, Nietzsche. Nietzsche, Nietzsche died a complete maniac. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been suggested that it was because he had syphilis. Um, I agree with f- French philosopher. I recently, re- re- um, excuse me, this, see, see this is what I mean. That which does not kill us does not always make us stronger. It just makes us stutter <laughs> <laughs> because I've had a traumatic brain injury. But anyway, um, Nietzsche... A French philosopher I was reading recently, he made the uh, he made the argument that Nietzsche didn't die from syphilis. He didn't go mad as a result of syphilis. It was a result of of basically the fulfillment of Romans chapter one. Mm. That when yeah. you suppress the knowledge of God and you allow that to seep into every fiber of your being, you go mad. And that's what we're seeing our, our culture do. So here's Schwab quoting him favorably. He quotes. Peter Singer, who we discussed in part one uh, favorably. I know Peter. So again, we're talking about, in some instances, I did not know Friedrich Nietzsche, just to be clear. <laughs> he was dead long before I was. Believe it or not. I, I did not know him, um, I, though I would have sought him out if I had lived in his time. But, and actually, this reminds me of an interesting conversation with Peter Singer at Princeton. This is a little aside. I'm sorry you guys can listen in on this. I remember asking Singer about Nietzsche, and uh, Singer said that he didn't think Nietzsche was a very good philosopher. In fact, to quote him, he really? said, I quote him, he said, he, I, I think he's a bad philosopher. So, who Did knew? he say why? I, you know, I probably have that conversation on a phone or something somewhere. Um, he probably did, but... But I actually agree with Singer on that. I, I think he's right about that. I, I think that, that Nietzsche is vastly overrated, and I don't think that Nietzsche was a good philosopher. But anyway, Peter Singer, as I've said, was a very you know logically consistent mm-hmm. yes. atheist. And so here he is quoting Singer, quoting him favorably. And guess what? He, um, Peter Singer is, has the title with the World Economic Forum of Agenda Contributor. So again, I said in uh, if somebody wanted to accuse us of you know well Larry you've you've hosted all kinds of atheists and Muslims and godless people at Fixed Point Foundation um, that doesn't mean that you hold their worldview that is true it doesn't mean that we hold their worldview but I wouldn't give them the title of agenda contributor yeah. <laughs> I would say no. I wouldn't say that uh, Daniel Dennett. Uh, whom I've debated, uh, the cognitive scientist at Tufts University, is an agenda contributor to Fixed Point Foundation. I would say he has a worldview that I want to demolish. That's what I would say. So, um, you know, I'm sure that if Nietzsche were alive today, he would be an agenda contributor. Sure. So where, in fact, Fixed Point actually works as a good analogy here because at Fixed Point Foundation, we have over the years hosted people of wide, you know, worldviews from Muslims to um, uh, to people who are in favor of gay marriage to, um, you know, uh, atheist journalists to uh, atheist scientists to Christian scientists to creationists to theistic evolutionists. We've had all sorts of people like that. But we're always very clear on what it is that we believe, Mm -hmm. okay? The World Economic Forum 
has had Donald Trump to speak, okay? But they are very clear on what they believe. Yes. And what they believe is the opposite of what we believe. It is a an utterly godless worldview. So again, here they here he is, and maybe I've spent too much time talking about who he's he's quoting and and who it seems that he knows, but I'm trying to drive home if you read these books, and I maybe I save you a little bit of time, what you can learn from this because I can tell when I'm in conversation with you on a on a, a given topic, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. When you're talking about something where I feel Amy Beth is in her element here, she she knows this topic, she's intimate with this topic, she's has a lot of experience with this topic versus a superficial understanding, mm-hmm. let's say, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we all can tell that. Well, in writing, it's not much different. So when when Schwab is is referencing uh, Hemingway, I, I I feel like. But you do you understand Hemingway? If you actually do, you, right? Do, do, are, are those are those books dog eared? You know, in your in your bookshelf, and I'm guessing not. But the ones that are dog eared are Nietzsche, <laughs> Peter Singer, who he quotes, agenda contributor, Steven Pinker, who was a cognitive scientist, also also an atheist who interestingly enough has written a book called um you know our better uh natures excuse me our better angels uh ironic and, ironic because he's arguing that humanity is progressing see see this whole idea of progress you know pollutes all of this this idea that there's this perpetual human progress it's just unending and we're moving from 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 one thing to another to always to a higher stage. And it's a kind of social Darwinism because just as Darwinism mm-hmm. argues that you're moving from a, you know, a one celled, uh, uh, um, uh, amoeba, you know, you're moving from that to a, a higher and higher evolutionary order. A guy like Pinker buys into that. I think very foolishly that that's also what's happening at a societal level. And I would say, no, we're not. We're getting more technologically advanced. But human nature is unchanged. Human nature is what it has always been. In fact, I would argue, and he's, he's arguing, you know, that wars are becoming less common and this kind of thing. I don't see how you can make that yeah, argument. No. I mean, did Stephen, have you, have you bumped around Africa for just a little bit? I mean, right. you know, I have. And um, I'm here to tell you that it might be harder for people to wage war, but I don't think that's that's a as a consequence of of a change in human human nature. But here he is quoting a guy like Pinker, who is again an agenda contributor. So in other words, the people that he's quoting. Oh, and then Yuval Harari, yeah, uh, the Israeli uh, who is an atheist, a gay atheist, and a Jew. You know, living living in uh, in Israel. Harari is somebody that some people who are listening to the show are going, he's the real sinister bad guy. I've had friends who have texted me and said, oh, you need to go after uh, um, Harari. He's, he's Schwab's right-hand man, and he's the real bad guy here. I don't agree with that. Um, I do agree with that he's a bad man. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that Harari, I think Harari is the P.T. Barnum of the World Economic yes. Forum circus. Mm-hmm. He's a historian. He's not a, uh, he doesn't in, uh, write code. He's not an inventor. Uh, he is um, not 
a, a billionaire who's driving this agenda. He's a popularizer of it. And I would even say that he's a poor historian because he's not actually writing history. He's a futurist. Hmm. So he's the guy who's saying this is what's coming. Mm -hmm. This is what's coming. But what? It, but you can find Harari's you know, 60 Minutes interview, his World Economic Forum interviews. Uh, you can find uh, multiple articles about him. One of the more interesting ones I can't remember if it's with The New Yorker or if it's with Vanity Fair. Excuse me, I said earlier that Peter Goodman was with um, The New Yorker. He's with Vanity Fair. And I think that the article that I read that was very interesting about Harari is with The New Yorker. But anyway, um, this is all very interesting because a guy like Harari, what is chilling to people when they watch him in these interviews is that Harari gets very exercised over, let's say, industrial farming. But when you talk about um, human suffering uh, and even extreme human suffering, as, uh, as one writer for the, the New Yorker says, um, Harari seems, you know, unmoved by that. And I think it's interesting because Harari has a personal mission statement and it is care about suffering. And um, this particular um, writer says, well, you know, he doesn't seem to care about suffering. But I would say, well, you know, his, his original mission statement was care about suffering and embrace ambiguity. Now, he got rid of the embrace ambiguity part. Okay. But when you say embrace suffering with a guy like Harari and his, his worldview... It's quite ambiguous. I mean, who's suffering? Doesn't mean that he cares a, a whit about human suffering. Maybe it's animal suffering, like Peter Singer. Peter Singer gets very upset over animal suffering. Not so much about human suffering. But my point here is that these are individuals, agenda contributors for the World Economic Forum that are driving their agenda, that are driving the way they think. They all have a singular thing in common. They are all atheists, hmm. all of them. And if you think that that worldview doesn't seep down into the way they view life, the way they view you, hmm. I mean, the way they view me, if I think of you, I mean, really, at bottom, if I'm in, there are those people who will say they're atheists, but their worldview, at a, a practically speaking, hasn't yet absorbed that, mm -hmm. meaning they still believe that human value, ha um, human life has dignity, that there's a sacredness um, to human life. But if you ever meet those scary individuals, as I have, whose worldview has been transformed by their godlessness. I mean, where they're prepared to follow it, like Raskolnikov in Dostoevsky's um, Crime and Punishment. They're prepared to follow it to its logical conclusions. Those are scary people because those are individuals. If I hold that worldview, I go, Amy Beth Shaver is a product of random chance and necessity. She is an animal no different than that bug on the floor. There, there are no bugs on the floor in here. But but she's no different than that. Yeah. She has no more value than that. And taking her life would be no different than taking that life. Now, I won't do that because I want to be a nice guy. And 
in order for us to get along in civil society, you can't go around bashing people in the head. Um, th this is the way they'll talk. Yeah. But if Amy Beth Shaver gets in the way of something that is deemed to be a greater good, she has to recognize that she must be willing to be put down. You know, so hence the reason that a guy like Peter Singer, as we said in the previous show, argues that parents should get 28 days with newborn children to determine whether or not to keep them or to euthanize them. And will also say he has argued that handicapped people who are no longer quote unquote contributors to society, that they need to be removed because they are taking up resources. And by the way, this philosophy, interestingly enough, goes back to Nietzsche because this was the Superman. You know, uh, yes. Nietzsche spoke of the Superman. He spoke of the Overman, as, uh, as he referred to him. And, and that is an individual. You know, Nietzsche is very famous. You know, you know what mm -hmm. he's most famous for is not saying that which does not kill us makes us stronger. He's most famous for saying God is dead. And the Superman in his philosophy is an individual who is prepared to face that harsh reality and live within that truth. In other words, as Richard Dawkins and other atheists would say who are atheists, they, they would argue that God is a crutch. You need him to feel good and give meaning to your life. Even though he's not there, he's like Santa Claus for you. It makes you feel better because you aren't strong enough to face the reality of a God, godless world. What is that reality? That you have no meaning, that there's no life hereafter, that those dead loved ones that uh, you, you really cared about, you will never, ever see them again. That there's no hope, no ultimate hope, no ultimate meaning, no justice, and no right and wrong. I, however as the Superman, am hmm. prepared to face that harsh reality and live according to its principles. So you can see a straight line from Nietzsche right through the Nazis, by the way, and they will deny this. I argued this with a, with a Harvard philosopher who just, I'm like, I mean, it isn't interesting. You're willing to follow the genealogy of your philosophy back and then all of a sudden it stops. Yeah, It doesn't go any further. It doesn't go back to Nietzsche, where it obviously does. And Nietzsche's philosophy was hugely impacted by Charles Darwin. Yeah. Because they were, they, they were willing to follow his worldview to its, you know, its logical conclusions, that life has no meaning and that, that there is no God. So anyway, this is, all, this is all scary stuff because here we are seeing an organization that is founded on fundamentally godless ideas. And I'll say one more thing here in our, our waning moments of this show that I think Schwab is very good at. He's an engineer. I don't think he's a genius. He's certainly not a philosophical genius. He's an administrator, a Mr. Organizer guy who's able to, to organize people and begin moving them in a particular direction. But I think there are bigger players here beyond Schwab who are smart enough to keep their agendas a little bit, a little bit off, um, off the radar. But I think that, that Schwab is good at making a variety of groups feel like they have a say when they have none. For instance, I found a 2001 article um, that you can find online. I can't remember 
in what newspaper it was in, but it was in a Jewish publication. And it was talking about the World Economic Forum and um, that Klaus Schwab was meeting with Jewish leaders in uh, New York and that these this collection of rabbis, I think, um, of Jewish scholars were saying that they hoped that there was you know, some place within the World Economic Forum for a Jewish perspective. And Schwab, um, the Schwein, <laughs> um, Schwab does a, uh, a, to me, I think he's devious insofar as he meets with these leaders and he gives them the impression that they have a role that they don't have. Because I now have the, uh, you know, the advantage, I'm 20 years on, <laughs> and as I look at the World Economic Forum, do I see a Jewish influence? No. I mean, Harari is Jewish, but he's not Jewish. Do you understand what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I mean, he's he's of a he lives in Israel and and he's a Jew, yes. But there's nothing of the Torah, yes. You know, there's nothing of Jewish theology of the religious faith to be found within the World Economic Forum. But Schwab meets with them and listens. As mm-hmm. you very patiently listen to me. He sits and listens and shakes his head and gives them the impression that they have a place within the World Economic Forum. And Schwab is now doing it with young people. Mm-hmm. The same thing. But what has remained unchanged with the World Economic Forum since its founding is he's been its sole chairman. So it runs kind of a dictatorship. And then secondly, it's philosophy. It's fundamentally godless philosophy. The idea, Schwab wants to give this impression that he's the avuncular, you know, um, international statesman who is willing to listen to everyone. I want to listen to Xi, and I want to listen to the, you know, the Islamic terrorists, and I want to listen to, not really listening to any any evangelical Christians that I'm aware of. Um, I want to listen to the uh, to the Orthodox Jews. I want to listen to all these different groups so that we can all have a, a diversity, a place at the table. They're not about that. That is all just a cover for running their own godless organization with a godless agenda. Mm. Okay. I'll warn you out. I mean, that's a lot, (laughs) but it is so important to know who these people are and where they're coming from. And next time we are going to talk about, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the organization itself, excuse me, just a little bit more and uh, what their, their agenda is. We have, we've, we've touched on it a little bit, but we'll get into some of these papers and things that you've been reading and uh, talk about some of the major players, influencers. Uh, for instance, Henry Kissinger. We've mentioned the, the Kissinger report. Kissinger was Schwab's mentor at Harvard Kennedy uh, um, School of Business, um, a school of government, rather. He um, uh, was, uh, was a, a mentor for him there. And that, that's significant. It is, indeed. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I know that you've enjoyed it because I certainly have. I feel like I'd like to go back and take notes on the notes I've taken. Um, but we will see you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you.
Honey, can we leave now? <laughs> 